Okay, well let's go ahead and get started. I've discovered that this has a hold button, so this week hopefully I won't suddenly be hearing myself on playback halfway or uh, toward the end. Let's uh, let's pray today. Thanks God for this season where we remember your birth, your advent, your coming to earth to uh, redeem us, showing your love and your care for us. Pray the Lord as we address Hebrews today and see um, your fatherly care and your uh, immense love for us that we'll just learn as children that we may grow into sons, into uh, kings in your realm. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'm going to do today is kind of overview the rest of the book just because we're about to go into a uh, holiday season here. I'm going to be out the next couple of weeks. Mike's going to take the class and do a couple of topical things. And then I understand we're going to have our first week in the new building where uh, we're going to um, gawk at the building and during the Sunday school hour. So when we come back, my plan is to uh, start delving into specifics in the book, including uh, this Hall of Faith and some of these other things that we're just going to uh, highlight today. Today we're going to cover really three things, uh, in, uh, or emphasize three things. Uh, the one is the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We've been talking about the fear of God in Hebrews 10, but we're going to continue to, uh, uh, to uh, delve into it. The second is uh, the love of God. The fear of God is immensely valuable to us because God loves us. Um, Satan has his version of fear. Uh, gangsters have fear. The fear is used often in our society. But if it, if it doesn't have love behind it, it's not beneficial. It's just uh, tyranny. Uh, but God's, God's, since God has our best interest at heart, when we fear Him, it actually benefits us immensely. So the fear of God, the love of God, uh, and then the, our fulfillment. Our fulfillment comes when we please God. When we please God, we're fulfilling our design and we are able to become all that God has us to be. And that comes about, we please God, when we believe God. We believe what He says and we do what He says. So going back to the overall structure of Hebrews we've proposed... We've got six betters, a word, and a word mixed with faith. We've got six betters, a better priest and a better king or a better son. Uh, Son being a title of nobility. So we've got a better priest offering a better sacrifice under a better covenant or a better law. And we've got a better king or a better son uh, offering a better administration, which he wants to include us in. In a redeemed world, a better world. And that better world is the fulfillment of salvation. Salvation being a holistic term that can apply to a specific thing or a very broad thing. That being the earth being put back to its original intent. Which is the focus and emphasis in the book of Hebrews. And particularly what God wants us to do is to bring that fulfillment... Uh, into the world that we live on a daily basis. And we do that with the Word mixed with faith. 
Uh, we talked last week about the word mixed with faith and how that word mixed with faith is an example all through this book. We've got the uh, <clears throat> children of Israel in the wilderness who heard the word, but it didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith. And as a result, they lost their inheritance. They lost their possession. They lost that which God had promised them, uh, but it was given up by them. And another generation took it instead. And today we're going to briefly talk about some people in the hall of faith that did mix the, 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 what they heard, the word they heard with faith. And they are enshrined in this, in this uh, uh, memorial, in this, uh, in this chapter. So let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. The very first verse here that we'll go over. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. This is the word. We've gone through this, I think, it was something like 40 instances. There's, I, I can't remember, I didn't bring my notes of uh, word or speaking throughout this book. It's a major topic. So don't refuse him who speaks. If we go back to chapter 2 and we get the theme verse of the... uh, possibly the theme verse of the whole book, um, it's do not fall away from that which you've heard. If the word of angels proves steadfast, how much more the word of the Son who's higher than the angels. He was made lower than the angels, but because of his obedience as a man, he's been lifted up above the angels and paved the way for us to join him. So, but, but he has spoken and we need to listen. And here we are again. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, When God spoke on earth in the Old Testament, whatever he said always came true. No one escaped his word. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. Sorry, I lost my place. But then... But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now, this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things which are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, this redeemed world, the new earth, or perhaps the millennial kingdom, Since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably. Acceptable by who? Who who do we want to serve a God acceptably? Acceptably in whose mind? In whose eyes? God, His, yeah. Not, not, Not ours, but His. With reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's rewind a little bit here and go to verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched. We're talking about Mount Sinai here. You've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. Where did the fire on Mount Sinai come from? From God. 
Our God is a consuming fire. To blackness and darkness and tempest, sound of a trumpet, the voice of words. Whose words? God's. So that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. This is what was commanded. If so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. The command was to keep this mountain holy or sanctified. Don't touch the mountain. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. You've not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burn with fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Let's go to this episode. This episode happens in Exodus chapter 20. So let's go over to Exodus chapter 20. Look look at your uh, passage there in Exodus chapter 20. And tell me what basically is happening. You should be able to tell fairly easily with your headings and the indentions. The Ten Commandments are being given. Yeah, so here's the Ten Commandments. We've got Mount Sinai and the fire and all that sort of thing, and the Ten Commandments are being given. Now, why did God give the Ten uh, Fun Spoilers? Why did He do that? He just doesn't like us, right? To show man that Okay, he's showing man that he's never lived. But is, is the main reason God did, gave us the Ten Commandments was just to show us how inadequate we are? I think they, both, they all show how to love the Lord and love others. They show the Lord, okay, how to love the Lord and how to love others. So they show us how to live. Is that all? Just uh, show us how, what we should do so that we, so that we know we can't do it? Gave you a way to be accountable. Gave you a way to be accountable, Okay. That's right. Yeah, yeah, he's telling us how to live life in a way that's most beneficial to us. Okay? What happens in a family where the children honor their father and mother? What, ha- what is that family like? What? It's a pleasant family, right? What's a family like where the children don't do what the parents say, don't like the parents, contest the parents, fight the parents? Maybe even maybe even impose violence on the parents. Is that a fun place to be? What happens in a town where there's murder? Now we've got this tragedy going on in uh, Connecticut. It's murder. And it's actually not honoring your father and mother. Is that making things happy? Okay, he's saying, don't do that. It's for your benefit. What happens when adultery takes place in a marriage? Does that make things happy? The children are happy? It blows it apart. It destroys community. How about when you have stealing going on all over the place? What do people do? They stop trusting. They stop interchanging. If, we, if you were in a, in a position where you knew that if you made any agreement with anyone else, they would not keep it, what kind of society does that make happen? There's no trading. There's no commerce. That will be a poor society. Uh, The United States of America is wealthy mainly for one reason. Honesty. 
We have a disproportionately honest uh, culture. And because of that, people trade. We don't spend an immense amount of money on security. Uh, people don't. I mean, in the feudal system, in the Middle Ages, people spent almost all their money building walls and hiring armies because the Vikings were going to come down and take everything you had. This is a way to have prosperity, harmony, happiness. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Uh, What does jealousy do? Does jealousy and covetousness bring happiness? It brings misery. He's telling us all those things you said are, are, are true, but he's holding up for us how to live life constructively. As Paul says in Romans, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is not at fault that we can't keep it. The law is a good thing. The problem is our hearts. That's the problem. And the law can't make our hearts better. That's why we needed a better law. Because this one doesn't fix things. But it's God elevating Israel to say, be a priestly nation and show the rest of the nations how to live constructively. So we go to verse 18. Now all the people, this is Exodus 20, 18. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. And the people saw it and they trembled and stood far off. Then they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. Okay, so what's happening so far? Tell me what's happening so far. People see what's going on in the mountain and what's their response? They're afraid. Do you blame them? What are they afraid of? They're afraid of God's words. What is their immediate fear? It tells you right there. They're afraid that they are going to die. Yes, Isaiah saying, "My yeah, I'm a man of unclean lips." This is a little different though, because Isaiah was awed by God's holiness and he felt dirty. And these people are saying, we don't want to die. Okay? Now, this is a very interesting thing Moses says, because he says, do not fear. Now, what would you expect someone to say next if they say, do not fear? What would you expect the next thing they would say? It's going to be all right. Yeah, you're okay. You're fine. Don't, Don't worry. And he says something basically just the opposite. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you so that you won't sin. Pretty interesting, huh? Here's my my paraphrase of what he said. Don't fear dying. Everybody's going to die, and dying's not that big a deal. It's just walking through a door into another world. It's It's not that bad. I mean, don't be stupid and walk on the mountain. But don't be afraid of dying. That's that's not that big a deal. Be afraid of sinning. Now that is a scary thing. Why is sinning a scary thing? It destroys. It destroys your community. It destroys your family. It destroys you and your conscience. And you have to face God and be accountable for it. 
And He's trying to get your attention so that you won't sin. Now, why does God not want people to sin? Because adultery is fun and He's trying to spoil the fun? Because stealing is an easy way to get something and He's just trying to make life hard? No. He's trying to create a harmonious society, harmonious families, and profitable lives. He's trying to get people's attention. And we need godly fear in order to understand. Don't be afraid of death. Be afraid of sinning. So let's go back to Hebrews again. Our God is a consuming fire. You know, fire is a very interesting thing. I did a lesson on this once. Um, Fire comes from light. Typically when we burn something to get fire, what we're doing is releasing sunlight that was captured during photosynthesis. So essentially fire is stored sunlight. And Jesus is the light of the world. We've studied this tabernacle and there's a light that's always burning in the tabernacle through the candle, representing the light of the world. Our God is a consuming fire. It's just packed with meaning. God is light. Uh, God is the refining fire. He's the purifier. We could, we could spend the whole rest of the time on that. But generally, I think in this particular context, the emphasis includes judgment. God is that that makes all things right. Because the whole world, the next time he speaks, it's going to burn up the whole universe. And he's going to restore the world into the uh, form that it should be. So you may not come to the mountain that may be touched. Verse 22, where have you come? You've come to Mount Zion. The city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. And which one's more awesome? Mount Sinai out in the desert or Mount Zion in heaven? Which one's more awesome? Mount Zion. There's no, there's no contest. Listen to what Mount Zion's like. I mean, Mount Sinai was a big deal. There's smoke and trumpets and, and a voice of God. That's a big deal. It scared people to death. You, us, this includes all of us, an innumerable company of angels. That's a little bigger deal than a trumpet. I I don't know what that looks like, but I kind of see in my mind, uh, being in Reliant Stadium, I got to go to the Final Four game. I was was pretty close to uh, the, uh, I was down on the floor in the seats where they, you know, uh, made it between the 50-yard line and where the, seats normally are. There's 80,000 people in there and you just look up and there's people everywhere. Everywhere you look. It was unbelievable. And, and that's kind of the best image I have is an innumerable company of angels. Everywhere you look, they're just everywhere. So far, there's so many of them, they're just specks. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Firstborn is the inheritor, the one who gets to be the CEO of the family, the son, the servant king. This is the servant kings. I would perceive that maybe they'd be right down on the, in, the, in the mezzanine boxes at Reliant Stadium because they're a little lower than the angels on earth, but 
these overcomers, these, these firstborn, they're elevated up. And they're now going to be part of the better administration in the better world. To God, the judge of all. When we've got the words of God on Sinai, but God Himself's here in the heavenly Jerusalem. To the spirits of just men made perfect. This is this teleosis, O-I-L-O, however you say that. Was Wally in here? He's not in here. However you say that. This this completion thing that we've talked about all through the series. These are the ones that made it, that did endure, that kept their confession. And they're there. To Jesus, the mediator. What role is mediator? Mediator. Priest. Priest. He's the better priest. Of the new covenant. Better priest. Better law. And the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now that, that line has confused me for a really long time. Why is he talking what does that have to do? Awesome, 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 awesome. Abel, what are you talking about there? Well, I think maybe I understand it now. In chapter eleven, if you want to flip back there. These hall of faith. The very first person in the hall of faith in verse 4 is Abel. Now this is what he's trying to get us to do here. The reason he's given us this awesome scene with this consuming fire God and this reliant stadium full of people who have persevered, who have overcome, who have reached the goal. It's because he wants us to be part of that group. In chapter 11, in verse 1, he says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now just think about yourself in a courtroom, and you're the defense attorney. And you say, Your Honor, I would like to admit for the defense this exhibit A, and you hold up two hands with nothing between them. What's the judge going to say? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. Right? That's uh, there's nothing. You're not. You're holding up uh, nothing. Oh, but your honor, this is the evidence of things not seen. Now, what's he going to say? You're right. You're right. Yeah, I can't see that. But you can't admit this into evidence. Why? Well, you can't see it. We don't deal in unseen things in human courts. But this is what the essence of faith is to consider it evidence as good an evidence as you enter into courtroom and you can't see it the substance of things hoped for what does substance mean you can touch it you can feel it what does hope for mean you don't have it you can touch it and see it but you don't have it it's evidence but you can't see it Faith. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Before who? God. By faith. 
By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Here's that word again. Not only is it our profit when it's mixed with faith, it's also that which formed the world. So that the things which were seen are seen were not made of things which are visible. It's interesting that scientists have now decided that only 5% of what we see makes up, that the universe is made up only 5% by what we can see. All these particle colliders and everything that they're doing, they're looking for particles called antimatter, which are particles you can't see. But they can't make sense of the universe by what's seen. They're now looking for what's not seen, interestingly enough. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now, we went through ad nauseum, the better sacrifice, right? Better sacri- got, They had the old sacrifice that didn't take away sin and the new one that did. The old sacrifice that had to be offered continually, the new sacrifice by Jesus that just had to be offered once. The old sacrifice that had to be offered continually because it didn't take away sins and Jesus' sacrifice that took away sins once for all. So we made it really clear, or I'm sorry, the author made it really clear to us that absolutely, positively, without question... Jesus' sacrifice is better than the old sacrifice. And what old sacrifice were we talking about? The temple sacrifice. Is Cain's sacrifice a temple sacrifice? It's thousands of years before the temple was even thought of, or the tabernacle was thought of. So sacrifice is nothing new, but he offered a sacrifice that was, that was uh, accepted. It was a good sacrifice. So... My theory, for what it's worth, in chapter 12, is that Paul is hammering home, it's a better sacrifice, it's a better sacrifice. Don't rely on a sacrifice that's not a sufficient sacrifice. Enter the Holy of Holies and take advantage of the one that works. Do it daily. And all of a sudden he talks about Abel, and just in case we think, oh, well I'll do Abel's sacrifice, he wants to make sure we know, well Jesus' sacrifice is better than that one too. See, Jesus is better sacrificed than anything you can think of. Maybe he's closing a loophole there. Because the priests are not given to us as a member of the Hall of Faith, but Abel is. So that's Jesus. Don't refuse him who speaks. Are you... If you're not scared when you, when you uh, read Hebrews, you're not understanding it, or you're oblivious. Okay? This is, this is fear. We're four, think of yourself as a four-year-old. That may be a little elevated from where we actually are versus God. I mean, think about it. Uh, I talked about my son with the four-year-old, and he's a great father and does the same thing God does. He tries to give fear to his son so that he'll learn, but he does it in love because he's got the son's best interest at heart. And he doesn't discipline him for being childish. He disciplines him to learn the things that will benefit him in his life. The thing we talked about last week was lying. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't, don't lie. Lying destroys your own soul. If you can't tell yourself the truth, you end up schizophrenic. So, 
He, he told me last week he had another episode. And he caught the boy in exactly the same lie with exactly the same evidence, knowing that he had told the same lie. So he went to give him a spanking again. And the son put his hand back down by his bottom as before and then remembered, oh, that hurt a whole lot worse than the bottom did and pulled it out. And my son uh, said, well, I guess what he concluded from that was, I'll take my spanking on the bottom. Now think about that for a minute. What could he have done? He could have just told the truth and then there would have been very small repercussions. But that's kind of the way we are, isn't it? Then instead of just doing what we should do, we do what we want to do and then try to minimize the pain and the consequences and manage that. And it's because we are, to God, much further away than this four-year-old is from my son in understanding because his ways are so far above ours. We're children. We need to learn potty training. We need, we need to learn uh, how to tell the truth. And we have this wonderful Father who has our best interest at heart that's willing to chastise us and channel us into the right things. Let's back up a little further. Let's look at uh, Hebrews 12, verse 17. Uh, Sorry, uh, 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. So we've got this hall of faith with Abel, who gave a better sacrifice. And his contrast is Esau, who was a profane person. Why was he a profane person? who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. We saw the heavenly Jerusalem where there were the firstborn. Esau was a firstborn. He sold his inheritance. He sold it for a bowl of food. Every one of us who've believed in the promise of God, every one of us who've believed and have benefited from the sacrifice of Jesus, the, the one sacrifice that takes away all sin. Every one of us have been given the possession of being an inheritor. And it's, us, it's ours to keep or to throw away. Remember, the children of Israel were given their inheritance, but they had to go and possess it. Esau had his inheritance. All he had to do is possess it. But he sold it for a bowl of stew. And everything that we do that will get our inheritance thrown away falls into the category basically of satisfying an appetite of some kind. Maybe it's a sexual appetite. Maybe it's an appetite for possessions. Maybe it is an appetite for... Uh, feelings or emotions. But he says, don't be like Esau. Verse 17, for you know afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, many years later he decided, oh, well, I want it now. 
He was rejected. He found no place for repentance. We saw this in chapter 6. When is the day to repent? Today. When we know that we need to turn back, there's a window of repentance. And that window can shut. And when it shuts, the inheritance can be lost. The benefits can be lost. The consequences can be permanent. He found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You know, at the very least, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be wood, hay, stubble, and gold, silver, precious stones. And there's no indication that there's a do-over. If we have wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to burn up. Let's rewind a little bit more. Verse 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. If you've ever coached basketball, like I have, and you try to get people to play zone defense, you always tell them, get your hands up. You play zone defense with your hands up. And after about, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds, people will start bringing their hands down. You know why? It's tiring to keep your hands up all the time. And the first, like, 10, 15 seconds of a possession, they'll really move and... And then pretty soon they're just standing there with their hands down. It's tiring. So this is, a, this is probably as close to basketball terminology as you can find in the Bible. But I'm just going to claim it, that zone defense is a good thing. The Bible says so. Strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Get strong. And make straight paths for your feet. So what's lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people. That's an interesting thing, right? He wants us to be sons. He wants us to be servant kings, servant queens. He wants, to be, he, he wants us to live now as high priests, after the order of the great high priest. He wants us to live now by faith as servant kings. And the first thing he says is, pursue peace with all people. This is harmony at work. And holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You can't see God if you're immersed in the world. What you see is the world. You've got to come out of the world and then you can see God. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. God's grace is so amazing. He's given us so much. He's given us the power to overcome sin in our daily life. The indwelling Spirit. But if we harden our heart to the Spirit and insult the Spirit, as he talked about in chapter 10, it does us no good. And we just fall short of it. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. You know, bitterness... And the tradition I grew up in was <clears throat> seemed to me embraced. My mom was awesome. She she taught she treated me amazingly well. She was a student of the Bible. Uh, she t- talked to me like an adult. Uh, she was a great mom. But I saw this happen to her. A root of bitterness sprung up, and it isolated her from almost everybody. 
and by this many become defiled, lest there be any evil person like Esau. You've not come to the mountain that may be touched. You've come to Mount Zion. So listen to him who speaks. What Paul tells us in Romans 8 is that when we walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the law. The law was given to bring peace and harmony. The problem was it wasn't written in the right place. Where was the law written? On stone. And where does it need to be written in order to really change us? On our hearts. And this is all the law is telling us to do is to bring peace and harmony. And he's saying, make that happen, guys. Take the law written on your heart. Take the word which you've heard. Believe it. Do it. Let's rewind a little more. Go back to Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You're looking for proof that God's going to do what you want Him to do? You won't find it. Except through the eyes of faith. He's giving us examples here. And He's saying, you've got plenty of examples to go by. Believe them. Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. Many people think the two witnesses that are going to come back in Revelation are going to be Enoch and Elijah because both of them were translated up. They were beamed up. And was not found. Why? Because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. There's the objective of life right there. He pleased God. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe two things. One, what's the first one? That he is. What did God tell his, uh, Israel his name was? I am. I am that I am. I am. I'm existence. I'm the definition of being. I'm who I say I am. We spend a lot of time in theology explaining God. And God doesn't... And it's fine to describe God. But we don't explain God. Explaining God is putting Him under our rational reasoning and within the bounds of our, of our reasoning. And He doesn't fit within the bounds of our reasoning. He's God. He's who He says He is. If you want to please God, the first thing you've got to believe is He's God. This is Rudy theology. Young man, I've been, in, I've been in theological work for 30 years and there's two things I really know for sure. One is, there's a God. And the other is, it's not me. Profound. God is God. We are not. got to believe He is. And the second thing you got to believe is what? That if you do what He says, it'll be worth it. Now, you will talk to people that will say, well, that's selfish. We shouldn't need a reward. We should just do it 
for the right reason. What's the right reason? Because we love God. Okay, that sounds great. And uh, why, why would you want to do that? Well, because, you know, it's the right thing to do. Says who? Well, God. So do you care what God thinks? Well, sure I care what God thinks. So that means you want to please Him, right? Yes. And that's a reward, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I guess it is. See, it all comes back to we're all going to try to please somebody. And really, most of us want to please who? Who's the number one most one of us want to please? Ourselves. And that's the spirit of our age. Self magazine and self-everything, self-esteem, self-actualization. Um, that, that's what our narcissism is, the spirit of our age. And what you find is if you please yourself, you end up alone. That's what you find. If, if we have a whole world of people pleasing themselves, what we'll have is a whole world full of disconnected people. I think C.S. Lewis captures this in The Great Divorce in a great way. You've got to believe that when you do what he says, it'll be worth it. And if you do what God says, it's, it brings a lot of pain in this world. You don't get to take shortcuts like other people do. Serving others is a lot of trouble. Most of the time when you serve others, they won't really appreciate it. You serve your children growing up. You discipline them. You withhold from them things that their friends are getting to do because you know it's not in their best interest. Do they say, I really appreciate you not letting me watch that movie like all my friends are? Absolutely. I know you know what's best for me. That would probably pollute my mind and there's no telling what trouble I would have later in life. You got to believe that what he's telling you is worthwhile, and that's that it's that's gonna, and that's how you please God. You believe God's God, and you believe that what he's going to do is worth it. That what he tells you to do is worth it. Noah, what Noah do? He built an ark out in the middle of land. Look at verse eight. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place which he would receive as an inheritance. Leave your home. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, evidence of things not seen, substance of things hoped for. Having seen them far off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly they seek a homeland. A new earth. A better administration. A reformed earth. A saved earth. And that's what he's wanting us to do. He's wanting us to live now the premises of God... So we're qualified. So we can benefit now, and that qualifies us for this better administration, because we are by faith, being the high priest function under under the obedience of Jesus. We are by faith being servant kings or queens under the obedience of Christ. Actually, you could argue all of us are going to be queens. That's another really good picture. Verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. 
Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't want to be a son of this world. He didn't want to be a prince of Egypt. He wanted to be a better prince and a better son. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Is sin pleasurable? Sure, absolutely. Is it lasting? He understood that I want something permanent. And it brings affliction in the front end. It does. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, Moses, this is Moses, the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why? He looked to the reward. Why? Because he wanted to please God. Because to please God, you've got to believe two things. That he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Chapter 12. This whole thing's been about Jesus. The whole thing's been about the better priest, who was made a little lower than the angels, but was lifted up of the name of all names and seated at the right hand of God, the better son, who made the better sacrifice under the better law that's written on our hearts, and the better king who is making a better administration, and the next time he speaks, he's going to blow up this world and put it in place with a better one. And he wants us to participate with him. He's given us that as an inheritance and a possession. Are you going to throw it away like Esau did? You're going to... You're going to throw it, leave it in the desert like the children of Israel did? Or are you going to embrace it like Enoch and Moses did and become great? Uh, I've been to Cooperstown, the Baseball Hall of Fame. I really like baseball. Not as much as Andy does, but I really like baseball. It was a real thrill to me to get to go. And I went through and looked at all the plaques. It was really cool. But I had no idea who most of those people were. Never heard of them. They're legends. They're in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I never heard of them. They're already forgotten. This group will never be forgotten. That's what I'd like to be. I'd like to be a legend in God's Hall of Fame. It's worth shooting for. Chapter 12. Therefore... We also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these great heroes of faith that believed God, even without receiving the promise, and they looked ahead and said, that reward, that'll be worth it. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Is it easy to sin? You bet it is. It's easy... And it's something worth laying aside. This is kind of like James's terminology. Let's lay aside wickedness and over, overflow of evil and receive with meekness the indwelling word which is able to save our lives. It says souls. But remember, anytime you see soul, you can substitute life. Pasuke. And let us run with endurance the race set before us. Paul likes the Olympics. Looking unto Jesus. He already ran the race. 
the author and finisher of our faith. He learned obedience even to death on the cross. And because of his obedience, his name was lifted above every name. Run like that. Despising the shame. Did Jesus have to endure shame? Lots and lots of it. Shame. Give me some, give me some of the people that shamed Jesus. Shame is when you're, you're rejected by someone because you're not living up to their standard. Peter. He was shamed by Peter. Jesus, you've got to stop talking like this. You're upsetting people. You're not going to go and die. We all know that. Just get yourself straight right now. Who else shamed Jesus? The scribes and Pharisees. You make yourself out to be God and you're just a lowly nobody. His hometown. His mother and brothers. The Roman soldiers. Gosh, is there anybody left? What does despise mean? Despise. It means you give it no value, right? Um, let's see. What is uh, some, Give me something. Uh, Warren, give me something you despise. Brussels sprouts. Okay, so Warren despises Brussels sprouts. That means if someone brings them in a bowl and sets them in front of you, what are you going to do? You're just going to ignore them, right? You don't give them any value at all. You might, you probably just throw them away. Well, shame hurts. But Jesus gave it no value. Why? Because he was comparing it with something. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. If you're up on a cross, you're buck naked. That's pretty shameful. You're up on a cross, you're dying in full sight of everybody. That's pretty, that's pretty shameful. He was beaten, bruised, bleeding. It's pretty shameful. He was mocked. You say you're going to rebuild the temple in three days, you can't even save yourself. But the joy set before him was to sit down. Who gets to sit down in the presence of the great king? Only one person, the prince. The queen even came sat down. Remember Esther? She went in uncalled for. And she was going to be killed if he hadn't put his scepter out. He had to go out of his way to say, I'm not killing you. Because it was automatic death to enter the presence without being invited. And if you're invited in the presence of the king, you've you got to stand or fall on your face. There's a great Mark Twain book called The Prince and the Pauper. And it's about a, a guy, a prince that gets lost and switched with, with a, uh, a guy that looks just like him and the pauper becomes the prince and the prince becomes the pauper. And the prince, uh, the, the, one, the real prince who's now a pauper, um, gets uh, this guy who's a kind of a, uh, a, a low-end knight that kind of takes him under his wing. And he always makes him stand because you don't, you don't sit in the presence of royalty. And the, and the guy thinks he's kind of out of his mind, so he accommodates him. And so he does something heroic for the prince, who's now the pauper. And, he, and the prince says, I'll grant, you, I'll grant you a great wish. 
And he says, I wish to be seated in the presence of the king. Again, he thinks he's out of his mind. He says, you're granted. He's like, oh, thank goodness, I can finally sit down. At the end of the book, it comes to light that um, that he really is the king. (laughs) And this knight is brought up, and he realizes what's going on, and he sits down. And everybody goes, (gasps) He must be stoned! He must be killed! And the king says, nope, he's got that right. He's the only one. Because you don't sit in the presence of the king. But if you're the king, you can. He's the son. He sat down. His name was above every name. Run like that. Be like that. Because he learned obedience. He was given a word. He mixed it with faith. He learned obedience. And he saw that the reward would be worth despising the shame. This is a great heroic journey. I don't know if you've seen The Hobbit yet, but it's an awesome hero movie. And Gandalf says, a great evil is coming on the land. I can feel it. I've been saying that for some months. And Saruman believes that it takes great power to hold back great evil. But what I've found is it's the little things that hold back evil. Acts of kindness and love. I was sitting there saying, that's my speech. That's it. There's a great evil coming on our land. And it's the small acts of kindness and love where we can hold it back, at least in our sphere. And when we do that, we're running the race set before us. And we're following the path that Jesus gave us. God, thank you for this amazing message. Thank you for the better sacrifice where you've written the law in our heart through the Holy Spirit. God, give us the wisdom to follow it. Help us believe that that's in our best interest. Thank you for the Son who was made a little lower than the angels and now has blazed the path for us, has become the captain of our salvation, has become the author of our faith, has run the race before us and given us an example to follow, who looked ahead to the reward and said, I want that and despised the shame. Help us do likewise. If there's any root of bitterness, Lord, I pray that you'll help us root it out. If there's anything we're doing to bring disharmony, Insofar as it's up to us, I pray that you'll help us set it aside. All the while, Lord, that we might elevate truth. And if your word brings disharmony, or if truth brings disharmony, may it be just on their part. And that we bear no ill will towards anyone personally. Help us set aside our appetites, Lord. That we not be like Esau and chase our appetites And set aside this great thing that you've given us to do. To serve. To love. To follow your way in our little things of daily life. Thank you for your definition of greatness, Lord. That we can all pursue it. Each and every one of us. With just the opportunities you give us. I pray for this holiday season. That your hand will be on every person in this room. That their families would experience harmony. And that every person in this room would be a priest to their family. 
and sow the seeds of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.